Hey guys, Jackson here with a brief content warning for today's episode. We discuss the Brad Aldrich allegations of sexual abuse coming out of Chicago at length uh, in today's episode. Sam Chang and Georgia Twist were kind enough to join me, not because any of the three of us are necessarily experts, but because, unfortunately, there is just a dearth of people who are willing to talk about what's happening and draw broader implications for the NHL and the world of hockey at large. So I will put a link in the description for those of you that would like to just skip ahead to the fun stuff. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Speed, agility, power. I'm a big fan of these things. All of the performance I demand for myself on the ice is here. It handles all of my needs in dynamic fashion. I see you now about the fourth time, baby, but you know that I got nothing to say. It's a charming look on your face. When you're rising by it's something I just can't do now. I've been around and by your heart, I'm looking for you just to shed some light on my day. Feels like ages since I've been on your all right, folks, welcome to another episode of Roxy Fever. I am your host, Jackson McDonald. Joining me are two ladies that need no introduction. You know them as co-hosts of the broadcast. It's Sam Chang and Georgia Twist. How's it going? It's hot, Jackson. <laughs> I know. It's real hot. <laughs> That's the only answer. I was working in a kitchen today and it got up to 42 degrees in there briefly. Um but, you know, walk-in cooler and a fan. So I, I figured it out. But, uh, yeah, this is awful. <laughs> My neck is, like, sweating. Like, that's oh, how so hot bad. it is. <laughs> it's, like, all these places that, like, I don't naturally, like, you never sweat on. I'm yes. just, like, why are my legs sweating? <laughs> yep. I, like, am so glad that I'm, uh, that I've, like, lost a ton of weight because, when I, when I got like, when I was really heavy, like I would lie down and my like neck and like back would just like touch each other and it mm. would get so hot. And I would yeah. just fucking die when I would go to sleep. Cause I would just have this one part on the back of my neck that would be like <laughs> so hot. Um, but yeah, anyway, speaking of things that are terrible and awful, <laughs> um, yeah, I um, had you guys on mainly to talk about the developing story that's coming out of Chicago relating to their former video coach, Brad Aldrich. This is something we've covered on the show briefly in the past. I've kind of been trying to keep our listeners updated on it. But um, Sam, in particular, I saw kind of going off about it on Twitter. And given that... Um, the other two boys are uh, a bit tied up at the moment. I thought, hey, what better time to have you two on than, than right now when um, we can, you know, properly represent uh, this issue by appealing to the three Twitter genders, which are, of course, Marxist, feminist, and lawyer. Um, <laughs> so oh, my God. Where should we start here? I guess... Um, I have, as I mentioned, kept our listeners more or less up to date with this story. But for those of you that missed uh, the 
early episodes on this. Um, I guess the quick summary is that uh, a few weeks ago, Rick Westhead reported that two former Blackhawks players who were with the 2010 squad that won the Stanley Cup were suing the team for uh, damages relating to sexual abuse and harassment they faced at the head uh, uh, or at the hands rather of this video coach, Brad Aldrich. And uh, more has come out since then. It's now being suggested that, well, I guess it's now been reported that the Blackhawks front office held a meeting and determined that they should not file a police report and that they then gave Aldrich a positive reference so that he could go on to coach in, I believe it's Michigan. Is that correct? Yeah. High school in Michigan. High school in Michigan. And that he later uh, assaulted a child there. So I guess my first question is going to be, at what point does the NHL have to start looking at this as an institutional problem rather than, you know, the, the few bad apples theory, I guess. Like 50 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Like not to be super jokey about it, but I think that's the thing that people know with this story. Like it's obviously awful in this incident, um, particularly because it involves him going on to assault a minor is pretty awful and the fact that it's on the backdrop of them winning the Stanley Cup but it's also not the only time and I think a lot of people have been framing the story as this kind of like big moment it's like this is a big moment in itself but this is also part of this much larger conversation the NHL doesn't even want to acknowledge this let alone like the history of it dating back to like the Sheldon Kennedy stuff like Darren Flurry stuff, all these coaches, like Katie Strang has been reporting over the last like two years about all these coaches, like in the US development system, like it's been going on for a long time. It's just perhaps because it's a pretty public team and it's at the point where it's in court, they can't ignore it anymore. And even then, they, I I would say they're doing their best to ignore it. Um, I mean, the story broke in May. It's been almost two months and they're only just now acknowledging it. And in his press conference, his state of the union this morning, Batman says, depending on what the investigation, the Blackhawks have now started today, June 28th, depending what those results are, that will determine what, if anything they do. And his first reaction was, I wanted to know the facts. Well, the fact is he's a convicted sex offender. It's not like other situations where you don't know, and it's just happened. And the like the fact finding has to happen. This man is a convicted sex offender. Like he is a registered sex offender. And you're like, I want to know the facts. Like <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And to George's point, it's been going on. It has been going on forever. Georgia tweeted that spreadsheet. Um, sorry, not spreadsheet. The Yeah, the spreadsheet yeah. Um, a few days ago, tracking all allegations of sexual assaults throughout the history of the NHL, not just coaching abuses, but like just generally. And there are 120 names on that list Yeah, from 1947 to present. And a bunch of them are on the Stanley Cup. <laughs> like, a lot that's of the other thing. Um, a lot of this stuff is because Aldrich's name is on the Stanley Cup. And there was a lot of all this stuff about like, oh, God. I guess like the framing of the pieces was like, 
how this is so gone so far because now it's like polluting the Stanley cup, like this, like hollowed trophy. And it's like, there's a lot of shitty dudes who have names on that Stanley cup. Like this is not, this is not the first name. And I'm happy that we're talking about it now, obviously. And I hope that does something like it's like oh no we have to add the now we have to add the uh, the like three remaining chicago blackhawks that haven't been canceled from that era to like the list of bad nhl players on the stanley cup like the thing is that like this was this uh team was already like tainted (laughs) for a number of reasons yeah and it's also it just speaks a lot i think this just it speaks to a lot of the culture of normalization of silencing and like you see this in like everywhere when it comes to sexual assault, the way that it's normalized to like silence and to cover up all this kind of stuff. And when it comes to pro sports, you obviously get the um, men's sports, particularly you also get the added kind of uh, layering on top of that with like the culture of toxic masculinity and um, the issues with sexual assaults uh on men who are less likely to come forward like all these kind of things that are are happening and like when you get the reports from players who are on the team who are saying everyone knew this happened everyone knew like that is such a sign of the way that the nhl insulates itself um in this case it's because of sexual assault but you know it's also like that because of homophobia because of racism, all these kind of things, it insulates itself and it protects its own. And that's like, everyone knows that. And this is just a case where it's kind of really illustrating that to a pretty violent degree. One thing that interests me about the way these issues are sort of covered in NHL circles is that, do you guys remember, um, just to illustrate, like a few years ago when Dan Carcillo first like sort of re-entered the conversation as a a guy speaking out about hockey culture Mm -hmm. it was specifically with regards to the hazing scandal with a sarnia sing or sarnia sting rather yeah and first of all that story didn't get nearly enough attention and it feels like all the momentum that had been built up there has just sort of dissipated now i don't know obviously there's the ongoing chl class action lawsuit we'll see how that turns out but one thing that interested me about the coverage is that sexual abuse happened on that team there were allegations that the coaching staff sexually abused the players on the sarnia sting and it even when people talked about it and spoke out about it and covered it that part was always as far like as deep into the article as possible or not mentioned at all when which is like kind of shocking to me because even just from the standpoint of like i know this is very i know this is a a gross way of looking at it but even just from the purely cynical standpoint of like what will get eyeballs on your piece you know former sarnia sting sting players allege that they were sexually abused by their coach would seem to be something that you would want to front load as much as possible. I thought that was very odd. And I think it kind of speaks to the really, really strong level of institutional buy-in that the NHL has from top to bottom 
And, and I say the NHL, but I mean the hockey world in general, because most of these allegations have come out of junior, but just the, the tremendous job that the NA that uh, hockey in general has done of convincing the, that the people at the bottom of the pyramid and the people at the top of the pyramid have basically the same interests, which I think an incident like this proves that that's not the case. Yeah, <laughs> it, it does. And I think the, the junior hockey one is interesting because they always, they also often just frame that one as a cycle of abuse as well. Um, even Carcillo talked about that, right? Like he, he participated in it because he had it done to him. And then it just creates this like really toxic cycle, um, particularly in regards to the hazing, but there for sure is an institutional buy-in. And there's also just a hesitancy from people to talk about this stuff. Part of it is culturally at the time, I don't know, people just didn't want to. I don't think that's an excuse. I don't, say that that means that they're okay to not talk about it and stuff. But I think that there was a lot of people in positions of power who either like, so if we're talking about the media who were just like, no, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about other stuff, either a, because they were uncomfortable or B, they just didn't care. And that's what you get. (laughs) Like, this is what you end up with. Um, And that's why, Having people like Rick Westhead and Katie Strang is so fucking vital um, to do this work because otherwise it does fall to the wayside or things happen like Sheldon Kennedy um, coming out and nothing actually changes because the NHL doesn't change. The Sheldon Kennedy incident is fascinating to me as well, because like Graham James was treated as like a total anomaly. Yeah. And now we know, like, if I like, I don't want to just idly speculate, but like a part of me wonders if the reason why a person like Graham James was able to get away with what he did for as long as he did is because the line between what's okay and what's acceptable and what is uh, like literally child molestation is pretty blurred in situations where you have like constant rookie hazing and sometimes coaches participating in the hazing of rookies. Like, and I, I want to stress too, like when, when I talk about hazing, I'm not talking about like you make the rookies carry the bags or like, no, like super violent hazing. Yeah. Yeah. Even like, Oh, we made the rookies play Edward 40 hands or whatever, which is like, that's not good either, but it's like, yeah, whatever young people Mm -hmm. get super drunk. Um, I'm talking about like, I heard one hazing story from the BCHL from a person I knew who played in the BCHL about someone, uh, a young boy having, uh, like, hot pins shoved in his urethra you know just normal stuff like that um so yeah i wonder i i just i think like the whole environment uh is just conducive to abuses of power because there's a very very warped perception of what's normal because a lot of these kids are you know only around other hockey people and uh you know spirited away from their parents at like 16. Yeah, I was going to say that that's the other big thing is you have kids who are 15, 15 at the very youngest, if they get exceptional status, obviously, but then like 16, 17, 18, who are away from home. This is the only thing that they've been focusing on for their whole lives. 
their identity revolves around being a hockey player. Like these are kids who, like when we talked to Kira McCormack about the scandal with the Whitecaps and the way that that was a particularly complex breeding ground for this to happen because you had girls away from home wanting to be on the, or on the Canadian national team for soccer. And it created this power vacuum where no one was going to say anything because it would take away their dreams. And also their, they had no parents around them, like all this kind of stuff. And I, it's in the, the junior in junior hockey, when we talk about this, it's a similar thing. It's that, that vacuum of all these things working against the kids and putting them in extremely precarious, vulnerable positions um, where this stuff can happen. Yeah. And I think it goes beyond just the hazing. Like, obviously I think the hazing is a large part of it and that contributes to blurring the lines. But I think the more pervasive issue is the power dynamic question. Um, One of the former players who swore an affidavit in the class action proceedings in the CHL abuse action, his affidavit specifically details a coach who repeatedly sexually abused him, sexually abused him. And he says he, you know, he explains in it his thinking of like, he wanted to report it, but there's also the dynamic of this is his dream. Like if he does that, like what happens to his playing time? Like what happens to his spot on the team? What? And I think that culture isn't just in the CHL, it continues. Like if you think about the fact that yesterday, Molly Walker from the New York Post asked Nick Letty, you know, you were on the 2010 team right around the time all of this was happening. Like, what did you know about it? And what are your thoughts on the investigation now? And his immediate response is, I know that Chicago is a first-class organization. Hmm. Like, stop and think for a second. You, like, literally all of the reporting is that they are embroiled in these allegations. You have two former teammates going on the record publicly saying that they confirmed the story. Brent Sobel goes as far as to say the front office should be in jail. (laughs) And your immediate reaction is not, you know, in my experience, they are first-class, but these are serious. Your immediate reaction is they are a first-class organization. And the other thing is in one of the lawsuits, I think it was James Gary, the other skills right. coach yeah, who convinced the player. It's he's some kind of it's a sports psychologist. Oh, That's it was the, the sports, psychologist. sports psychologist. Thank you. He convinced the player not to come forward. I can't remember if it's the player who's now suing or if it's the other one. Sure. But with the same kind of thing of like, a, this didn't happen. B, like, it's going to ruin your career, basically, which is hor- like that is horrifying um, on so many levels to be a sports psychologist. And that is your reaction is like, what the fuck? But yeah. And it's not it's not just with the players, right? Like, think about to your point, um, Jackson, it's that these kinds of details get buried in the story. Like they deal with the more with a less serious allegations of abuse first and not sexual abuse, because I think when you read those kinds of allegations, they are universally repulsive. Like any decent person reading these allegations will think, holy fuck, that is super fucked up. Mm -hmm. And so they get very partially because people don't know how to cover it properly and it, it makes them uncomfortable to write about it. But I think we have to acknowledge there is absolutely an access issue when you think about the reporters who do cover it. Like 
Elliot Friedman is getting raked over the coals, rightfully so, because he literally has, like, I think until yesterday afternoon, had not shared a single link to any of the reporting. And his only acknowledgement of it was like, here's the latest 31 Thoughts podcast. And they spent six minutes of a 40-minute episode talking about it and said absolutely nothing of consequence. Yeah, you uh, you also kind of noticed a similar, like that's a similar theme across the entire PHWA. Is that not correct? Yeah, yeah. I think a number of athletic writers retweeted the piece because Katie String. Yeah, that's sort of how it goes when it's your employer. Not to not to uh, um, not to. I'm sure I I also you know, I know a lot of people who write for The Athletic and I'm also sure sure that it's sincere as well. But it's like you have the again, if you want to talk about institutional buy in as soon as one person does it. And that's something that I've like, that's something that I've noticed. And it's something that like it's part of the reason why independent or alternative media is important is because like these large media institutions, like sometimes you have to march in lockstep, like, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people would, a lot of people would wince when they hear me say that a lot of my media friends would probably wince to hear me say that. But the reality is like, there's stuff that doesn't get reported because it's either going to damage a relationship with a source or it's going to damage a relationship with an advertiser or whatever else. And the thing that I find frustrating is that this is, this is largely just considered like the game. That's just the the way the game is played. The media game that is. And um, people don't see it as malfeasance. And I mean, I understand why, because obviously if you're a, media personality you may rely on sources and you will want to have good relation uh, a good relationship with your sources but what does it say about the sport that you're covering if you can't talk about the sexual abuse of a player in an NHL organization by another NHL employee mm-hmm. uh, because it's going to damage your relationship with a source I think this came up last last year uh i can't remember whenever um the babcock stuff was happening that whole mitch marner thing mm-hmm. so i remember after it came out people were like there was media people who were like yeah we heard about that but like didn't report on it because and they gave some excuse and everyone's like why the fuck wouldn't you report on that like that's pretty intense of a thing and it was so clearly because of the that idea of losing sources or losing access or that kind of stuff. And I think the media in Toronto won't even ask Mike Babcock about ice time. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember Jason Botchford's whole thing about that from yes. a, couple of years, a few years ago? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and this is just to just to interject there, because I think this is a, an important thing to underline as well. Like when people talk about, you know, the media and um, having an agenda or uh, just trying for clickbait. This shit is great clickbait. This is excellent clickbait. This would be a very, very, very good way to, uh, if you were looking to tear down an NHL team or tear down the NHL, reporting on this over and over again would be a great way to do that. So why is almost nobody talking about it other than Katie Strang and Rick Westhead? And well, like what Sam pointed out, why did it, this was filed in May. Like, why is it this week that now it's suddenly because now you have players who are coming on the record? Like, I don't. But why? Why wasn't that happening before? What is it? Um, And the other thing is, 
I think there's people who would say, who, who might've said like, Oh, that's a Chicago thing. Like I'm in Vancouver, that's Chicago. I'm not going to comment on it. But with this case, what we've, we talked about this on the last podcast. And I think people have been talking about a lot, like the people who are in supposedly like in this room or the people who are in the upper management or on the, on the bench who supposedly like knew this was happening are widely spread across the NHL right now, because that is how the NHL functions where it just recycles old white men around. (laughs) And so this is also a Montreal story. This is a Winnipeg story. Um, This is a Florida story. This it's like all around, you can't escape it. So report on it, report on it for that, let alone the fact that you have a team that literally covered up a sexual abuse scandal on players. Like we, we talk a lot about player safety. Like this is such a clear example of the NHL, not giving a single fuck about its players and you need to talk about it. And I don't know, like I, one of my favorite movies of all time is spotlight, (laughs) which is deeply dark to like love, but it's such a good movie, but it It tells you a lot about the importance of long form journalism and also the ability for like the hard work that goes into breaking these stories and going into it. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's complicated. It's complicated, but it's just interesting because uh, when there's a story with real stakes, the media that, covers the nhl they do not have knives out they're remarkably soft-handed with the material that they're given and so i just i i guess i would point to incidents like these as examples of or even like the jake for stuff if the vancouver media was how they were supposed to be that story would be plastered all over every newspaper constantly you know and on and on both sides of it too there would be a ton of uh, probably a ton of awful stuff like smearing the lady or whatever, too. So it goes both ways. It just goes to show you, though, that like, you know, Vancouver media, I make fun of the Vancouver media more than anybody. But like it just serves to illustrate that, like the uh, the whole idea that the uh, the media is trying to uh, take down people or teams or whatever is is completely ridiculous. I have tons of issues with the media, but it's for the opposite reason. <laughs> They're not trying to tear, tear these teams down enough. <laughs> I think that's totally right though. Right. But that's, that's kind of the nature of the PHWA. Like, I, I mean, I, I get it. If you're a current beat writer, you have to speak to the team and management every day. You have to consider those relationships, blah, 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 whatever. And it's super telling that, you know, we say it's always Rick Westhead and Katie Strang, but of the two of them, Katie Strang is the only one of the two of them who's actually in the PHWA. Rick Westhead is not. He actually can't get credentials. And, you know, I did an interview with him last summer and he essentially said he can't get a single person in the NHL to call him back. They just won't talk to him. He's been blacklisted. And I think it's incredibly telling that it's down to two people. And essentially, I think they can't blacklist Katie because it would be too way too transparent if they did even that. You know, you look at things like the Elmer Ferguson Award, where you hand it out to distinguished members of newspaper and journalism who, and the award specifically says like distinguished reporters who have brought honor to the game of hockey. And of that entire list, only two of them have mentioned 
the Blackhawks story at all. And it's Helene Elliott, who isn't even really covering hockey right now. She's covering gymnastics and Scott Burnside. Yeah. And that's it. And Al Strachan was asked specifically about it and essentially was like, unless I hear from reliable sources, which is in and of itself, super questionable choice of words. And you're a reporter. You should know what, that your choice of words means something. Yeah. And then says, if I get paid to look into it, those are the only two times I'll care. What is, what is the point? What do you think your job is? Like you have no natural curiosity as a human being. Yeah. Again, it, it, it's, it's, it is weird how, like if you cover the NHL for long enough and you care about the office stuff and you care about the institutional stuff, it is very interesting how much the criticisms relate to one another. Because like for, you know, for example, uh, I know Gary Bettman just said in his media availability that the NHL doesn't have any problems with officiating. Um, But like I started off the month of June trying to do a bunch of episodes about how like the Vancouver Canucks got scammed out of a Stanley Cup as, as a bit and ended up doing a bunch of episodes about how like the entire process of. Uh, officiating and player safety is just a total shit show. And I think with something like this, something as something as like relatively small potatoes as like the NHL's inability to sell itself to a larger market relates back to something like this, because it's like, I'm sorry, but part of the reason the NHL can't sell the game to anyone is because the the way the NHL operates with the media and the people who choose to go into covering the NHL both essentially have a vested interest in keeping the coverage as boring as possible, because to be interesting, you have to be willing to challenge the status quo. And the only type of writing that is allowed to challenge the status quo in hockey is like quote unquote analytics writing. And even that is just like, the NHL just uses it as like, okay, we're going to learn this stuff. We're going to figure out how it works. We're going to distill it and figure out how to talk about it in hockey man language. And then it'll just become normalized once we figured out how to use it <laughs> and, and make sure everyone stays in the same jobs. <laughs> the NHL loves being the bottom of the barrel. Like it's, it's, they love to both come like, complain about being the fourth of the big four. Um, So they love to complain about it, but they also love it because then they don't have to do anything. I say this all the time, but like they don't actually have to challenge anything. They're fine with the status quo. They're fine staying in the position that they are because then they don't have to appeal to people of color and suddenly fix the issues of white supremacy that are rooted in the game. They don't have to fix like all this terrible stuff that's so like rooted at the heart of the game. Um, but they like to complain about it. Um, it's hockey fans favorite thing to do like, Oh, woe is me. We're like, so looked down upon, but also like, we love it. Well, and to, to add on to that as well, the reason why they don't care, you know, it's not because they're, evil white men, although many of them are, Um, (laughs) but it's not just because they're evil white men who want to like enact pain onto like people who are different from them. It's specifically because if you closely follow the 
machinations of the NHL and individual NHL organizations, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that what this is mostly about is jobs for my buddies. Yeah, it's exactly for their golf, for their golf team. And the funny thing about that is that like, that's not even like we all do that. The problem is when it's done in a situation where it's rigidly hierarchical, there's no accountability and there's no one watching the watchman, basically. So the Blackhawks have now finally said that they will conduct an independent investigation. Well, um, okay. And they've, they've retained, I think his name is Reed Shar, who's like the chair of litigation at a national U.S. firm. But who knows what will happen with that? They did go a step further than the Canucks in that they actually named the told people who it was. Yeah, I think so. The player actually, the person who's uh, behind the lawsuit, the John Doe, mm-hmm. went on the record, like sent an email to Request Head, and he was it's pretty rough to read, just talking about his kind of journey with coming to terms with what had happened, which in the context of the fact that the Chicago Blackhawks are trying to get it thrown out because of the statute of limitations is like pretty rough to read. And then his lawyer said something very funny about the fact that they, like they took on this investigation and she was basically like, it's a fucking sham. (laughs) Like, yeah. (laughs) Which like, yeah, you're right, Susan. I think that's her name. I can't remember her name, but. I'm actually of two minds about that. I think they took a lot of people uh, Katie Strang reported that the law firm they retained is the same firm that Larry Nasser did the bankruptcy. They did the bankruptcy proceedings for oh, NSA okay. gymnastics after the Larry Nasser allegations. And I think a lot of people just assume that in a large firm, you know, everything that's going on. And that's really not the case. Like if you like, frankly, a litigation partner based in a San Francisco office is not going to know anything about a bankruptcy file happening in Chicago, regardless of how big it is. Like, you might know that your firm is retained on it, but you don't actually, like, know everyone. Yeah. And also, I will add to, we mentioned that this is a, a Montreal story, but um, by by the same token, like, you know, obviously, I don't know what went on in the Blackhawks front office. But on a similar note, like... Mark Bergevin did say that he uh, was not aware of what was going on at that time. When you're looking at an organization that is covering something up, it is plausible that there would be people in the organization that wouldn't know about it. Now, there have been players that have said that everyone in the locker room knew about it. So I think there are Uh, I think can and should implicate a lot of different people in the Blackhawks organization, but not necessarily everyone. And, um, you know, I won't I won't comment on the plausibility of the uh, Bergevin thing, because I I honestly just don't know or or really care because it's not the really the most important thing to me is like whether or not we can tie it to the Stanley Cup final. That's like a gross uh, (laughs) thing to that's a gross thing to care about. So. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. But um... I think people were skeptical just of the Bergevin thing because he was the, I think he was the director of players, something per player yeah, personnel. personnel. That's right. That's yeah. the reason why. Um, and then the last thing I just wanted to say is they've requested affidavits from like everyone and requested emails from everyone. So a lot of this stuff 
is going to come out whether they like it or not. How deep the cover up goes, we obviously don't know, but will it'll it'll make its way out there eventually. I sure I certainly hope so. On to uh, lighter news. We have not had a chance on the show to talk about the Sudians actually officially being added as senior advisors. Uh, as with any Canucks news, it was telegraphed through the media for like at least a month and a half before it was official. So we've certainly uh, discussed it a little bit or discussed the prospect of it. But now that it is officially a done deal, how are you guys feeling about it? I feel pretty good about it. I I mean, I feel pretty good about it in the sense that I think the Sedins are taking it seriously and bringing kind of their same work ethic and intelligence and whatever good qualities to this job that they have throughout the rest of their career. Um, I do think it's possible and probable that two things can be true, which is that they will be good at their jobs because they take it seriously, but also that the organization's motivations for doing it were not based solely on merit. No, not at all. (laughs) Like people seem to think that if you say there were PR motives to this, that you're insulting the Sedins and it's like, no, these things can both be true. They don't need to be mutually. Well, and I also think the Sedins know that (laughs) like, like they're not dumb enough to like not get that. And I think that was very clear in the ways that they tried to in the press conference that they had, they tried to make it very clear to people, you know, we don't know everything and we're coming in and this is what we want to do. And and we have so much to learn and all these kind of things. They were really working themselves to position, to position it that this is what we are. While also you could tell they knew there's a reason why it's us. And there's a reason why we're here. (laughs) Like, it's not like there's that that's every, like it, that's just so obvious (laughs) to everyone. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's it's also like, I mean, just because people say it was a PR hire, which it was, it's fine. Like it was, I'm fine with saying it was primarily a PR hire. I don't care uh, because I think the Sidians will have good judgment. I also think they're insulated enough that they won't really like be making a lot of decisions for a while. But like, what did people... What, did, what do people expect us to think about that? Like that because it was a PR hire, Henrik and Daniel should have said no. Like, But they did say uh, no <laughs> for well, a They did time. say no initially. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But it's like, you know, eventually they're going to, they're, you know, they're going to want to get back to the game. They need money for small horses and children's hospitals. Like I'm sure they wanted to get back into the game eventually. And these, the, the, the best part of being a professional athlete especially one that is at a very high level with one particular team is that you can basically get like a lifetime appointment to your stance meal. Yeah, exactly. Literally stance meal. I mean, like did Ron DeLorme even play for the Canucks? And like, he (laughs) has just, you know, like he's been there like my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. And he's bad. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I was going to say the other the other thing that's good about the Sedins is that they are, I think, as much as they can be honest, like mm-hmm. they don't play the stupid PR games that the Canucks have been playing for the last few years where like they pretend they're delusional and think they're good. Yeah. Like the best part of the last week was all the press conferences where they were like, yeah, it sucked watching this team for the last few years. <laughs> yeah. They're garbage. 
And I was like, oh, you can actually acknowledge that. That's refreshing. It's incredibly refreshing. No, I, I mean, I I think that if nothing else, the Canucks uh, identified a weakness here, which is in communication. <laughs> the Vancouver Canucks have an absurd problem with messaging, just in terms of like how to stay on message, how to articulate your message, and also just like what kind of message you send by not sending a message, if that makes sense. And like, if we want to just to like bring it all back around, I think when you look at the way that the Canucks have kind of done business since the end of the Mike Gillis era, you know, I'm sorry, but like Vancouver is a very coastal cosmopolitan city. It has coastal cosmopolitan values to a much greater extent than most of the NHL cities anyways, or most of the NHL markets. And the Canucks just like outside of, you know, like pride night and Diwali night or whatever, like they just don't, they're not particularly good at like realizing that or acknowledging that. And I don't want to like project a, a ton of wokeness onto the Sidians. Like they're like, rich old Swedish guys, but like they would not step on a rake when it comes to being asked questions about, you know, the kind of issues that are facing the NHL right now. They're smart enough, wise enough and kind enough to understand how to approach these uh, kinds of issues with compassion. And I think the Canucks really need some people around to do that. So what you're saying is the Sedines wouldn't refer to a woman coming forward with allegations of sexual assault as that girl with the blog. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's such a good like that's actually such a great example because, you know, that was Jim Benning putting his foot in his mouth. You know, I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to psychoanalyze the guy. Some girl with her blog. I literally I just like lost my mind like it, in a way that wasn't even like. I'm, I'm just, I was like, I'm just so done. Well, it's it, like, it was just like, so of course you would say Jim. it like that. Yeah, it's exactly. so fucking easy. Like, he just, he can't hard. help himself. He just, he can't. Like, he cannot give a single press conference without saying something that is just basic. Like, you just, you instinctively, as somebody with any kind of media savvy, no, you shouldn't say it. He can't help it every time he says it. We're uh, we're getting pretty close to time here, and uh, it's very very hot, so I won't keep you girls <laughs> too much longer. But um, you know, obligatory hockey podcast mention that uh, we are recording on the night of the first game of the Stanley Cup Final. Uh, Tampa Bay winning, I think, was it five one or four one? Five one, five one, five one. Yeah. Do you guys have any rooting interests in this one? Any predictions? Any uh, observations? I'm cheering for the Habs, but like, kind of. Yeah. Not like. They're your preference. Yeah, they're my preference. Yeah, sure. Um, I get that. But I feel like Tampa will win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems like a reasonable bet. Yeah, I'm basically the same. I think like, I think there will always be some like weird Canadian hockey thing, like just deeply ingrained in me from years of living with my father <laughs> to be like the Stanley cup coming home, which like I try and tamp down. Cause I hate it. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, I really, I do really like Carrie price. Um, I like Shea Weber, you know, it would be, 
nice to see them win the cup. It'd be great um, to see Alex Burroughs win the cup. And Alex a, Burroughs, you know. yeah. Yeah. I, my two main reasons have really nothing to do with the Habs being Canadian. I just, I hate that concept a lot. Um, Which is why I'm rooting for Tampa. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an asshole. <laughs> I would, but I just, I really want Burroughs to win. And I also, as like a dark and twisted Canucks fan, I think it would be incredibly funny if Tyler fully won the cup. Uh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's also entirely reasonable. That is, yeah. that is my sole motivation for cheering for the Habs. Yeah, that would be very good, actually. No, I think Tampa's was very good <laughs> as evidence. And I don't know. I think Montreal got through because they've been really good on their systems. Like they showed this stat today about their penalty kill, which is insane. They've scored more shorthanded goals than they've given up, which like that's insane. Their, yeah. their penalty kills at like 93% or something which is pretty good, but I don't know. Tampa's just too good. And I think John Cooper is way too good at matching the players up. Like he was, I think he was getting the matchup of like Suzuki, the Suzuki line with points line. And it like, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> they're too good. Like it's not going to happen. It will be deeply depressing that Pat, Patrick, Patrick Maroon. Yes. Yes. Had a hot flash blank there um <laughs> wins the cup three years in a row that just like makes me want to like be unalive but that's fine i think patrick maroon winning uh three stanley cups in a row will be a huge strike for the body positivity movement <laughs> so i i'm here for it also what was the thing sam like oh he had sex with his like friend's mom in high school or something oh yeah yes yes i didn't even know that this is like a tampa thing like first Fedotengo, Mary's yes. his great mom. Yeah. And now this. Florida man. Yeah. Florida man. <laughs> that's our, th- that's our thoughts on the series. Patrick Maroon had sex with his friend's mom. <laughs> I just can't wrap my head around like Alex Klorn shouting out Ron DeSantis and then winning the cup again. Like I just, yeah, I can't deal with it. Ugh, yeah. That was, that was not good. No. But I've also thought Montreal was going to get steamrolled in basically every round and they have not. So I don't know. That's a team that needs to be explored a little bit more in depth, I think, because like, what the fuck? (laughs) I don't understand. Uh, I mean, you know, I think you can make a case that they're actually better than they looked for a long time and that adding like a few key pieces at at key moments, et cetera, et cetera. But also like, come on, what the fuck? Right. Yep. All right. Well, on that note, um, (laughs) thanks for listening, guys. Uh, Do you guys have anything to plug? Listen to our podcast. (laughs) We're one month away from our one year anniversary. Oh, my God. True story. We're going to start a Patreon soon. So get our shit together. (laughs) Everyone get in the broadcasts uh, mentions and yes, encourage uh, them to get a Patreon, but not before. (laughs) <laughs> subscribing to the Roxy Fever Patreon at patreon.com slash Roxy Fever. We just released a very fun episode about the infamous uh, partying with ownership story in San Jose uh, from 2011. It was uh, published in Deadspin. Oh, the photos are amazing. I forgot about that. Quite an adventure. So I highly recommend that. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at McDonald. You guys can plug your Twitter accounts as well if you would like. <laughs> you can follow me 
at Georgia Twist, and the podcast is at Broadcast Pod. I'm at Samantha CP underscore, but I'm super annoying, so don't follow me. <laughs> All right, and uh, oh, who should we send hate mail to? Just Gary Bettman. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow general. we've never sent hate mail to Gary Bettman. That's shocking. Send your hate mail to Gary Bettman's home address. I'm sure it's available <laughs> somewhere. All right, thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.